This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Good morning, Icon. Today, after we have spent several weeks talking about Jesus's last words to his disciples, his last words to us, we are now transitioning in the text. After assurances of God's presence, the need to take heart, after Jesus saying, these are the things you need to be prepared for, the text now starts transitioning into this passion narrative, Jesus's walk toward the cross. So after the Last Supper, after his prayer and his words, Jesus with 11 of his disciples walks out into the night and they go to this garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives to this special spot that they had gathered in before. Here, late at night, with these heightened events of Jesus coming into the city with the weighty words that he just spoke hanging over them, This is where our text for today begins. So let's hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 18, verses 1 through 27. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told him. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the company of soldiers, the commander, and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and tied him up. First they led him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Caiaphas, who was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be better for one man to die for the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter remained, standing by the door. So the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, 
You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing with them, warming himself. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus answered him. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple, where all the Jews congregate. I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officials standing by slapped Jesus, saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? If I have spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and they said to him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Peter denied it again. Immediately, a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. As Jesus that night walks to the garden with his friends and his followers, he knows what awaits him. This first event that will start a pretty rapid movement to the cross, and Jesus goes willingly. That night, almost walking like a lamb to the slaughter with what is coming his way. The authorities needed a place to arrest Jesus that was not public. And Judas, because he was inner circle, he's on the leadership board, he has this valuable information that they need. They're going to be in this private location. And so Judas takes what has been entrusted to him, and he goes outside that space of confidence in order to use that against Jesus. Now, we know that Judas is motivated by greed, that he had a price. Most people have a price. None of us are beyond having a price. But I do wish that we knew more of his motivations. I wish that we knew more of his dynamics with the other disciples. What did he actually believe about Jesus's purpose? When I think of Judas, I still think of children's Bibles and flannel graphs where Judas always had kind of a thin, pointy face and a handlebar mustache and a bad goatee, and he always sort of looked like this Disney villain lurking in the background, kind of rubbing his hands together. He was always sort of depicted in children's stories as this Weasley character that very clearly you should not trust. He always had this bad guy energy. But I do wonder... Was he clearly this devious character, or did he fit in with everyone else? Was he just playing this part? I think betrayals that sting the most come when we do not realize that these are people that we cannot trust. They showed up. They helped us. They demonstrated faithfulness and care. But then when the heat comes, when there's a better offer, whatever the motivations— then they turn on us. So Jesus knew what kind of person Judas was. 
But did the other disciples, how did this betrayal feel for them? Because for three years, Judas had fit in with the disciples, bearing witness to what Jesus said and did. Three years with the Son of God right in front of him. And yet somehow Judas completely misses him. In the presence of God and Judas misses him. It really is entirely possible for us as people to play a part as someone who belongs to God without really belonging to God. If Judas really knew and understood who Jesus was, Jesus is where his identity would lie, but clearly his identity lies somewhere else. Betrayal can happen when what our identity is rooted in is threatened. Betrayal of a system can happen when the lies that we've been covering up are about to be exposed. And betrayal is often rooted in a level of self-preservation. I will end up breaking trust. I will end up going back on my word. I will end up throwing someone under the bus if I have to protect me or elevate me or those that I consider to be mine. When there is an offer on the table to betray one thing, in order to get another. That is really when it's like there's this line drawn in the sand and betrayal is you choosing to step over that. You had information entrusted to you that you ended up manipulating and using for the downfall of someone else because it benefited you somehow. Maybe a space you worked in claimed to have your best interests at heart, but you were thrown under the bus in order to protect those with more power than you. Maybe the church culture you grew up in proclaimed the values of Christ, but then they cast their votes and their support to someone who's in opposition to the values of our Jesus, because protecting privilege overrides much. Betrayal is a choice that reveals where identity is actually rooted. Betrayal is a choice that shows who is my real Lord. I showed my allegiance was here, but this has more value to me. I lived in a way that said, this is where I'm anchored, but the benefit here is now greater for me. This is where Judas is right now in this choice. And our Jesus will absorb and bear all of that betrayal. So to this private spot, Judas leads this Roman cohort of soldiers. These soldiers would have been on duty during the festival. And he also brings with what is essentially the temple police force. People there to bring law and order. They're there to bring law and order, and they are led to one whose very body represents and is the definition of peace. There really is a tendency for power to view um, opposing thoughts or ideas as a threat even when they are born by people promoting and embodying peace. Genuine actions of peace unsettle power because real peace requires justice, and power does not play fair when it's protecting itself. So here we have the Prince of Peace himself, sought out by those instituting law and order because the peace that he bears is threatening their interests and their positions. So that night, it would have been a full moon. 
but he is in a private place. They were actually in the space that's kind of like a dark ravine. So they bring lanterns and torches because they're expecting to have to hunt for him, search for him hiding. This is why they needed Judas in the beginning to get him here. He knew in this expansive outdoor space where Jesus would probably be. So Judas leads this mob of soldiers and officers with lanterns and weapons because they are expecting to have to fight him. They are not ready for how Jesus is actually going to respond. So Jesus watches them approach, his disciples with him probably terrified by this armed mob coming to get them. And Jesus knows it's time. So he steps forward out of the darkness into full view of those who are bent upon violence, motivated by their hatred, those viewing him as an enemy, and Jesus just steps out to meet them. He doesn't wait to be taken. He doesn't hide. He meets this head on, this mob with Judas in the front, this line drawn in the sand, and one who was his on the other side. And I love that Jesus is the one who speaks first. Who is it you're seeking? Who are you looking for? Jesus asks to be named by them. Jesus of Nazareth, they say. His words, I am he, and they jolt backward. This glorious power in this declaration of I am rocks them back. Their legs buckle beneath them at the sound of his voice saying, I am. Because this is actually not Jesus just identifying himself. This is um, echoing this I am formula that we have throughout scripture. All of the Jews present would have heard and known immediately who and what Jesus is echoing. The power of God before them voicing, I am, knocks them to the ground. For in that moment, God in his glory is revealed. It doesn't matter where their allegiances lie. It doesn't matter what they believe to be true. His power still rocks those people back. They came ready to find him skulking in the trees and caves. And instead, he steps into a glorious defiance. A single unarmed man is actually more armed and equipped for this fight than they are. He actually is the only one there who really knows the magnitude of the battle that is happening in that moment. And in this moment, Jesus is showing who still has the control, who still has the upper hand. He does. For his voice speaking, forces those in opposition to him into complete surrender. This is our God. This moment of power of him revealing himself as I am is a move that would have shook them, and it is quite profound for us, because we need to know that in that moment, his power is still fully there. His voice flattens them. He could do way more than that. Therefore, he only goes with them. He only starts the path to the cross. He only goes to judgment and punishment that he doesn't deserve because he willingly chooses to. Our Jesus is never forced by any other powers. The laying down of his life for those he loves, for the world, for us, 
his choice, willingly. Talk about real love. So I imagine this scene, them all laid out on the ground, this mob of soldiers and officers with weapons and armor in submission to him, and Jesus, this unarmed, solitary figure just standing in front of them. They're probably trying to figure out what just happened. They're struggling with all their armor to get back up. And Jesus, who's just standing there waiting, repeats, who are you looking for? Want to say my name again? Now, do you have a greater sense of the magnitude of who it is that you're asking for? Were their voices and their resolve a little weaker when they have to repeat the second time? Maybe they're bracing themselves again. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth. They still have orders. They still have allegiances. Jesus basically says, I already said I'm the one. (laughs) Why y'all hesitating? And in that moment, Jesus thinks of his friends and his followers with him. I will go willingly, but let them go free. Considering those in his inner circle, even after one of them has just betrayed him. And as they start to grab Jesus, Peter takes a swing with the sword, lops off the ear of one of the servants, which, you know, where did Peter get a sword? Had he disarmed someone? Did he bring it with? If so, why? Was Peter always carrying a sword, always packing heat? Peter gets such a bad rap, but a little credit where credit is due. He is the only one here who kind of tries to defend his leader and friend by apparently going for the head. This is sort of a shining moment of courage for Peter to contrast with these next events of his. An armed mob, but he's so charged up by them taking Jesus that he's the only one who does try to do something futile as it may be. And Jesus says, you know, hey, it's okay. Pull back. No need to do anything. This is something I have to do. It's okay. So Jesus then goes with them, but only sort of after making this very clear point, still have more power than you do. No one took Jesus's life from him. He only gave it freely. And they first take him to be judged by the religious leaders in the community. So Rome at this point permitted the Jews to hold trials according to their own laws, and they were able to rule on things, but there were some limitations upon that. It would have been illegal for them still to try Jesus at night, so they give him what seems to be an attempt at an informal hearing. So the former high priest, Annas, interrogates Jesus in front of this crowd in this attempt to try to trap him with something that can be used against him at trial. Can he figure out a way his teaching was blasphemous? Can he try to point um, a rebellion on him? Find something to bring heavy charges in court. And Jesus, I love Jesus here. He's basically like, yeah, so there's nothing new for me to share with you. I've been pretty open and clear already. Why are you guys asking me again? The way that Jesus kind of questions them in this part of the narrative, he really is implying he knows that they're trying to draw him into something that's self-incriminating. 
And Jesus is basically like, yeah, so this isn't going to work because there's literally nothing there. I've already said everything. If you need more evidence against me, try asking the multitudes of people here who follow me. And Jesus is also sort of saying, you need to get your evidence in the right way. Examine witnesses, which right now you do have the right to do. Stop examining me, which right now you do not have the right to do that. Jesus here is straight up checking Annas. This answer is calling out manipulative tactics, and one does not question a high priest, because in the temple, he basically functions like a governing authority. Thus, that is why this makes this official hit Jesus, which that was illegal for these kinds of questionings. Jesus' direct approach to the manipulation of power and his calling out of unjust tactics really seems to get under people's skin. Seems to be true also of his followers who tend to mimic him in this way. So Jesus kind of counters with, I don't get why that merited a hit. I'm not wrong. He's asking for this hearing to be conducted justly. And in Jesus correcting their proceedings in a way that makes them lose their cool, Jesus is showing, I still have the control and upper hand here. I still know more of what's going on than you guys do. So Annas reaches either the limit of his authority or his patience. And so he binds Jesus and sends him up the chain to the acting high priest Caiaphas, which will be part of our text for next week. While all of this is happening, this interrogation, Peter and John arrive. And John is allowed inside because he knows the right people. He has to go out and get permission to bring Peter in. Hey, he's with me. And as they're entering, this doorkeeper says, hey, this man they just brought in here, aren't you one of his people? Peter, his fear is probably running high. And he's now in the belly of the beast, says, no, I'm not. I'm not one of his. This part of the narrative tends to cast a shadow on Peter. But again, a little credit where it's due because where are the other disciples right now? Only two of them seem to have even attempted to try to be near and to be present. Often our failures in what God asks of, asks of us are precluded by some real efforts and attempts. It is a very relatable and human thing that Peter is going through, to have courage, but then to have it waver. Peter is probably nervous, unsure about even being there, and now he's already been questioned by someone as he's just going in. It's the middle of the night and it's cold. Peter's wondering, what is going on with my master and my friend? Afraid, but wanting to stay close. So he finds a spot by the fire with some servants and officers. And with a crowd around, they ask him, aren't you one of his? No, no, I'm not. You're mistaken. No, wait, someone else says, I was in the garden. I saw you. Peter's heart pounding. No, that wasn't me. I wasn't with him. And as those words finish coming out of his mouth, the rooster crows. In the space of just a few hours, both Judas and Peter have failed Jesus. Just imagine Peter's heart dropping, breaking, Jesus' words and prediction coming back to him. What have I done? 
Now, Judas's failure and his lack of repentance afterwards consumes him to the point of death. Rather than taking his sin and his grief to God, Judas is overtaken by his sin and actions. His grief completely undoes him. Rather than his grief leading to repentance. So Judas, even in the moments after that, even with all he is feeling, he is still missing who Jesus is. Jesus is a place that can meet those things. And Peter is overcome in a very different way. While not our passage for today, we will be there soon. This is the context to hold on to and to tuck away for when we hit John 21. Because Jesus will, in the most tender but powerful way, offer a gracious restoration for Peter's failure, a healing path for a repentant heart. For Peter's incredible failure to pull through, to stand his ground, to be bold for Christ, Jesus meets with a grace and forgiveness that is stronger than that failure. This does not render Peter useless for purposeful and meaningful kingdom work. For our God doesn't just match our failure with forgiveness, but his forgiveness overrules it all, buries it in a grave that he then walks out of. Jesus invites us to himself, knowing the fullness of our failures and the ways we will betray him and who he has called us to be in this world. He knows, yet still he beckons us, stirs our hearts, calls to us, knowing that we will give him our allegiance in one way, but in the next moment deny him. He knows we will worship him one moment and dishonor him the next. He knows we will show his care and concern for others with generosity and in the next moment be driven by self. He knows we will sacrifice for others and then later try to protect our privileges. And yet still, he invites us to himself. Still, he calls to us. Still, he wants us. And he calls us to repent. Jesus gives us the chance to confess and turn away from these things and toward him. We cannot fully measure God's capacity to keep welcoming his children back to himself because we do not have minds that can fully comprehend the height, the depth, the scope of his love. We cannot fully grasp what it is that our God casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. We have a God who does not hold a grudge, who does not give us the silent treatment. He does not expect us to earn back his favor. It's not how our God works. So this for us with God is a place of faith. This I think is a place where sometimes we can only pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me believe the truth of bottomless grace when I'm believing a lie of limited forgiveness. Help me believe a truth of endless mercy when I'm believing this lie that you are disappointed in me. Help me believe the truth of a love that will not let me go when I'm believing this lie that you have turned away. Help me believe so that I can image you fully and rightly. Because if you claim Christ, if you're his, as God's image bearer for us in this time and this space, We're not on any neutral ground. 
What we choose to declare, how we align ourselves is always communicating to the world what is the heart of our God like. And when it comes to things in opposition to the heart and the character of our God, to try to remain in a neutral space is choosing a side. You can't stay in a middle space because there's no neutral territory when it comes to what is of Jesus and what is not. When it comes to if you know him or not, you can't keep your head down, warming yourself by the fire, just trying to slip by. Not when what is at stake is the name and reputation of Jesus. Not when what is at stake is that our world would understand what our God is really like. Our words, motivations, our real-life actions— When the mob arrives, when the pressing questions come, when we have to choose between self-preservation or self-sacrifice, what we choose shows the world, who do I really belong to and what is he like? This part of the narrative is really a sobering reminder that there's no neutral space. So with the spirit, we should really examine, where am I aligning myself and why? Where am I being motivated by the heart of God? And where am I motivated by self-protection, comfort, ease, success? Especially when the outcomes of those motivations come at the expense of other image bearers. Do you care for the marginalized, but only where you are really not required to give that much up? Do you declare you love God the most and out of that you love others, but you politically align in a way that is oriented around me and mine first? Do you agree justice is definitely an issue after God's heart, but you treat it like a side topic because you're weary of your privileges being poked and prodded? Do you claim, yes, Jesus is Lord of all, but then you will bend a knee to nation or empire? We betray and deny the nature of Christ when we embrace a brand of Christianity that ignores the cries of image bearers for true justice. We betray and deny the being of Christ when we put our interests first while taking from those with less. We betray and deny the purpose of Jesus when we will maneuver scripture to justify and back those with power. We betray and deny Jesus when we will prioritize worldly success and our desires and will pretend that we prayed about it and we have a peace when really we're just fooling ourselves because we want to do what we want. We betray and deny Christ when we claim to follow the bread of life and yet I have strategically chosen which lives I deem worthy of being protected. This is what it is to gain the whole world, yet lose your soul. Jesus' way is better. His way is not one good way to walk through these things. His is the only way. Where else do we have to go? And Jesus values so much that we would be empowered to walk in his way while we are here that he took our guilt and shame upon himself so we could be freed up to walk like him. 
Jesus desires so much that we would look like him while we are here that he endured torture and willingly sacrificed himself. A price was paid for us to be on his side in this. And we can take heart that a matchless grace is offered when we fail and we repent. Our failures overruled by a resurrection level of redemption. This life is tough. Our choices are weighty and challenging. But look at who we get to follow. Look at who we get to align ourselves with. The one whose very voice could not keep those with power on their feet. We get to do this with Jesus, the great I am, the one who said, if any of you want to follow me, deny yourselves, take up your cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save life will lose it, but whoever loses life because of me will find it. So church together, let's give up and lose in order to find and save with our Jesus. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your presence with us. And we thank you, Father, that the only reason that we are able to know, understand, be close with you is because you have paid a price in order to make that happen. So, Father, I pray over us for the ways in which we still functionally maybe in ways that we're not aware of, are betraying and denying the nature of who your son is by how we cling to parts of you and ignore others or push against others. So, Father, I ask for you to make those things clear in us, not, Father, so that we can change them for our own elevation, but so that we can be transformed to look more like your son so that you are the one who is seen and known and honored and glorified in this space. We thank you that this is not something that you are asking us to do of our own efforts, but that you have made the way for us to be empowered to live by your spirit. So I ask, Father, that you help us to cling to that, that you would help that to come to bear so that your name is glorified. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Please hear the benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us, to him be glory both in the church and in Christ Jesus, now and forever. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.